Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hello, I'm Henrietta Lovell. I'm a traveller who searches the globe, seeking out truly incredible tea. Have you ever taken a sip of tea and wondered where the leaves were grown? Imagined the emerald green tea garden somewhere far, far away? My guest today is the tea-loving Londoner Henrietta Lovell, also known as the Tea Lady, who for the last 20 years has traversed the globe in search of the world's most exquisite and rare teas. Henrietta's love of loose-leaf tea was awakened when a high-flying corporate job took her to the dazzling harbour of Hong Kong, where a single sip of oolong transformed her life. She was seduced by the extraordinary flavour and set out to revolutionise the way we drink tea in the West – by starting the Rare Tea Company. Since then, she's worked alongside the most celebrated chefs, from Noma's René Redzepi to Heston Blumenthal and Mama Fuku's David Chang, who all seek her expertise in the finest teas. Henrietta's quest to source leaves directly from farmers and to connect with tea-growing communities has enticed her to estates in some of the most remote and unlikely of places. We chat about her book, Infused Adventures in Tea, and follow her on a journey from the cradle of tea culture in China to the foothills of the Himalayas. We meet monkeys in Malawi and Zen Buddhist monks in the temples of Kyoto, and we'll spill the tea on why the locals of a small village in the Bolivian Andes believe she is a witch. Pop the kettle on and make a cuppa, because I can feel a rather enchanting episode brewing. Here's Henrietta Lovell. Hi, Henrietta. How are you? I'm extremely well. How are you, Edwina? Lovely to talk to you. You too. I'm so thrilled to have the chance to chat with you today. My appreciation of tea has certainly grown over the years the more I've tried a variety of teas in different regions of the world. But reading your book has totally, irrevocably changed the way I think about tea. And I'm sure our listeners are going to be entranced by your infectious enthusiasm and fascinated by the entire philosophy behind Rare Tea Company. But before we get into all of that, where in the world are you at the moment? I'm actually in Copenhagen in Denmark. Oh, one of my favourite cities. What are you doing in Copenhagen? Well, I work with some of the restaurants here, and um, one of the most famous restaurants in the world is Noma. Of course, of course. Noma reinvented Nordic cuisine and really put Copenhagen on the culinary world map. There's extraordinary people, and they don't like to do anything by the book. They are about as idiosyncratic as you could get. And so every season they change the menu, and every season I create new blends for them to go with the dishes. So it's one of the most extraordinary bits of work I get to do and the greatest pleasure because it means I have to eat at Noma three times a year. Oh my goodness. Yes, René Rezepi is an absolute genius and what a fortuitous collaboration for you and such a testament to your taste in tea. It's so much fun and joy and I learn every time. The flavour combinations they work with are so fascinating and it really also has taught me that what you first expect is not always the right answer. And that, you know, you, you might think that one pairing would be perfect, but actually it's something totally different. Breaking all your preconceptions that can be most rewarding. 
Well, you have worked with some of the biggest names in the culinary world, the likes of the Fat Ducks Heston Blumenthal and, and David Chang's Momofuku Group in New York and then obviously Noma as well. What's it like to introduce these celebrated chefs to the world of tea? Well, it can be uh, it can be very extraordinary. I was once in a tasting with some – I was doing a pairing of caviar and tea in Paris and there was a group of two, three Michelin-starred chefs. They were all men and um, – the first thing I gave one of the chefs was a cold-infused, sparkling iced tea. So it was a really incredible tea that I'd carbonated, and it was really one of the most delicious things you've ever tasted in your life, and it was a great palate cleanser. And he said to me, uh, what is it? And I said, it's tea. And he said, oh, no. He just put his <laughs> hand up, and he said, no. I was like, you've come to a caviar and tea tasting. He's like, I, I am not interested in tea. It was really <laughs> funny, but by the end of the... Um, of the tasting once he had tried some of the tea and you know been bullied into it by me he was like this is incredible this is amazing he was completely at the other end of the spectrum (laughs) that's so funny it sounds like you really worked your magic on him and I suspect by the end of this episode you will have worked your magic on us as well but let's go back in time to when you first fell in love with tea in your book you write about your travels to Scotland during your childhood and how a wonderfully grand lady named Diana introduce you to the joy of sharing a pot of Darjeeling. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I had a a relative in Scotland we used to visit every year for our holidays. We weren't very wealthy growing up. We didn't travel abroad. We always went from London, where I was born, up to Scotland, where all my family are from. And we would visit all our relatives. And mostly, we would be sent out into the garden with a glass of orange squash. And um, the parents would be inside, either drinking tea or whiskey. But there was one lady, a very, very grand lady called Diana. And um, her house was an old granite house with blue window frames and a long gravel drive leading up to it. And in the window of the house, as you drove up the gravel, which made that lovely crunching noise, there was a grey African parrot and he would greet you hello in her voice. It sounded exactly like her. And then so the, and the house was, was set in beautiful gardens with loads of rhododendrons and raspberry canes and gooseberry canes. And so in the summertime, we'd be out picking fruit. And then in the wintertime, we just sit around the fire and there was a huge big fireplace in the middle of the drawing room. And at tea time, she served tea and that was it. You know, it didn't matter. As long as you were old enough to hold a cup, you got a cup of tea. And it felt very formal, served in the drawing room and a silver trolley was wheeled in with this beautiful tea set, lovely bone china with flower patterns on it. And we would sit before the fire in the drawing room and I remember even the colour of the sofa because it was pale yellow and I was terrified of dropping any tea on it (laughs) or a cake. You know, to be sitting there in your best dress and your scrubbed fingernails, drinking this drink for the adults. And she always had Darjeeling, she'd grown up in, in India. She would tell stories of her childhood in India and it felt like the most exotic, exciting thing. And I very much associated the drinking of the tea with the place that she was talking about and it tasted of exoticism and adventure. And I I think she really kindled the love in me as a very young child. That's amazing that a sip of tea could transport you to these enchanting, faraway places in your imagination. And at this point in the podcast, I usually ask if there's a book, a film, a song or piece of art that inspired you to travel somewhere. But for you, I believe it was a single cup of tea. And it was only later in life on a visit to Hong Kong for work during your career in corporate finance that you will reawaken to your passion for tea and it set you on a path that changed the trajectory of your life forever. Yes, I'd sort of forgotten um, 
Diana died and I grew up and drank a multitude of, you know, normal as people thought of it, tea bag tea and never really loved it and forgot about this other world of tea. And then um, I, I was very lucky to be traveling a lot for my work before I set up the tea company in Asia. And I was in Hong Kong with a client who was taking me out to try and show off. And rather as we might take someone out for a really beautiful bottle of wine in the West, in China, they would take you out for a really great cup of tea. Mm. And I remember clearly that the uh, this oolong that was ordered for me was $150. And I thought, how can a pot of tea cost $150? This is impossible. And yet once I drank it, I was blown away so entirely. I thought, my God, what is this? Why have I been missing out on this? It took me immediately back to the yellow sofa and to Diana. But also for all the wasted cups of tea I'd had, I kind of wanted to weep for all the loss and I've been making up for it ever since. Yes, you certainly have. And I found that point that you made so interesting about the cultural comparison between the appreciation of wine in the West and tea in China. Anyway, so that experience of tasting the remarkable oolong in Hong Kong revived this love of tea and set you off on your initial quest to find one of the most prized teas in the mountains of Fujian in China. Yeah, so all the things one knows about wine is true of tea, how it's made, how it's processed, every single nuance of detail about the little tiny place in the world that it's growing and then how it's grown and then how it's harvested and how it's made into the tea will affect the flavor. Mm. So I started to read about the terroirs and the growing conditions and the places that have been and the famous places it was made. We've been buying tea from China for a very, very long time, since 16th, 17th centuries. Mm. And this tradition was very rich. And yet I wasn't able to find any Chinese tea back in Britain. Very, very small amounts in just a few uh, high-end department stores and of not great quality. So I started to think, well, where do these teas come from? And is it possible to rekindle the trade and to get it going again? But I didn't know after the Cultural Revolution and um, all the turmoil that China had been through that it would still be there. And it hadn't been possible to visit. You know, China was very closed. But I was there at the turn of the millennium and it was just starting to open out. And I was able to go, not really very sensibly, but like hire a driver. <laughs> Often we had no language in common and I relied on little scraps of paper with instructions written on them. Like, this is where I want to go. And please, can you take me here? Or can you show me this? Oh, and how I, adventurous. Well, I mean, kind of foolhardy when I look back on it now. But <laughs> sometimes the best things are done by a naive idiot. <laughs> Well, you say naive idiot, I say adventurous spirit. <laughs> yeah. So what was that first foray like for you? Can you describe for the listeners what it was like arriving in the mountains of the famous tea province of Fujian, China? Uh, you know, I was mostly, I was had been in the cities, a place like Shaman, and they were very busy and modern and they were transforming before my eyes. You know, when I first started to go to China, it was all bicycles. And then a couple of years later, it's all cars and mm. Everything is growing and being knocked down and being built. And as you go out into the countryside, things change. And at that time, the great road building projects hadn't taken place. So you were on little tiny roads and the journeys would take a very long time. And it was like going back millennia instead of not by century, but by millennia. So you know, by the time I got to these quite isolated rural places, it was like it felt, you know, like some kind of um, trip back in time. Wow. And um, people very... Um, simply living, but very clean, beautiful environment. 
and I looked very outlandish. And I'd made a stupid mistake of thinking I'd wear a red dress. I love wearing red dresses. Mm. And if I took some pictures, I thought it would look nice in the green tea. So some of those early pictures that I still have to the tea farmers and to the local people, I looked like I was a bride. Oh, yes, of course. Because in China, brides wear red for good luck. They don't wear the traditional white gown that the brides in the West wear. So I'm sure you've learned a lot about the cultural differences since you first visited. It's been almost 20 years since you began Rare Tea Company. I read your book, Infused Adventures in Tea, and I was utterly captivated. I assumed it was a coffee table book because of its sumptuous green and gold cover. But it turned out to be so much more than that. It's deeply personal and touching and really just a a love letter to tea and the communities and the people that produce it. And it's fascinating the way you describe tea talking about these um, these tasting notes, and it's it's very much like a sommelier might articulate the flavour profiles in wine. Mm. You're a real connoisseur of tea and almost have an encyclopedic knowledge on the subject. So what's the core philosophy behind the Rare Tea Company? There may be people who have a deeper, in fact, there probably are people with a deeper scientific knowledge of tea, but few with a a deeper love. And it started with love. I mean, I fell so deeply in love with tea in China that I wanted to bring those flavours that had been missing, those beautiful leaves that we had not seen for a long time, back to the West. I mean, China had had a revolution. We'd had a world war. The tea trade that we used to enjoy had broken down. And we were just drinking in Australia, in Britain, in America, in the West, just industrial black tea, pretty much exclusively. And I I had a mission to try and open that out a bit. But as I learned more about tea communities traveling around the world, I realized that there was much more to it, that it was also about making connection between tea growers, tea farmers, tea communities, and the people who drank it, because a lot of that world is very, very exploitative. Mm. And once you start drinking, Drinking something for its high quality, the farmer gets a better value for it. Everybody, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. You know, if we seek out the best tea for the best flavors, that's generally made by people who craft it and make it in the best ways. The uh, the chef Farron Adria once told me that if you look for the best flavors, you'll always find the best farmers, mm. people who really care. The people who are really crafting something for the most incredible flavor will produce the best teas and they will have the most um, sustainable farming practices. And it's a very virtuous circle, less chemicals, less industrial destruction of our very delicate ecosystems. So really great tea benefits the land, benefits the people who drink it and benefits people who make it. And I think that's the virtuous circle I'm looking for. It's got to be good in all those ways. Mm. Well, I live in Australia, which is a country where coffee culture reigns supreme, something we are very grateful to the Italians who immigrated to Australia in the wake of World War II. And we've developed this knowledge and way of describing coffee and even the provenance of the bean. And it hasn't at this stage extended to the world of loose leaf tea. So hopefully your crusade against the tea bag and the attempt to revolutionize the way that we drink tea will filter down and change the way that we think about it too. Could we stop a minute and talk about coffee? It's extraordinary. I've been in Australia uh, many times and I've witnessed the rise of coffee and it's it's so profound. People really care. It's very hard to get a bad cup of coffee now in Australia. You know, when you're drinking great coffee, all the same principles apply to great tea. You take a little care on how you make it. You think about where it comes from. You treat it with love and respect and you get this incredibly different flavor. The difference between a coffee bean and an instant coffee granule is probably the same as an an industrial tea bag and a beautiful leaf. Well, you've certainly convinced me. That is such a great way to think about it. 
So your quest for the finest teas and working with sustainable and ethical farmers around the world has certainly led to some bold and boundless adventures throughout your life. Which destination do you think has surprised you the most? I have this very ignorant view of Africa as being quite a dry, desiccated place. Mm. And um, I suppose, you know, I'd grown up with pictures on the news of famines and um, droughts. And I thought that was partly because the environment was so ravaged. Mm. But actually... Malawi in, in East Africa is one of the most incredible places you've ever seen for green rolling hills. I mean, I think it probably rivals New Zealand. You've got these beautiful mountains, but they're green and it's so fertile. You drop a seed and anything would grow. You know, the, the earth is red and deep and it looks like it should be the richest place in the world. And unfortunately, for many historical and present reasons, the people there live with very little. Mm, And that lush landscape would certainly surprise a lot of people. Can you set the scene for us? What's it like to arrive in Malawi? Oh, my gosh. Well, when I go, I almost always go straight from the airport to the tea garden. I go and visit a garden called Satemwa. And on the way through, you see all this, the community of people by the side of the road, the markets, the the commerce that goes on. And there are potatoes and there are bananas. I mean, a very rich environment for, for farming. But it has become very reliant on tea and on tobacco. And the tea fields on the gardens where I work, place like Satemwe, is full of trees because you want the biodiversity. What animals might one expect to see at Satemwe Tea Estate? Well, Malawi has um, not just wandering around, but they have game reserves with all sorts of extraordinary animals that we associate with Africa. But just in the gardens that you would see around, there would be mostly things like monkeys and bush babies and lizards and birds like you would not believe. Incredible, beautiful birds. And and September actually also has a very rare bat which uh, lives in one of the lodges, which is can't be moved because it's so special and so rare. And um, there are snakes. Um, so if you imagine if you're picking tea and you're walking through these bushes, you know there are there are snakes there. Ooh, well, apart from the snakes, I have this idea of it as being this really peaceful setting, and I can imagine waking up to birdsong. Yeah, and then and then you're right. So you get this sound of these sort of chirrups of the frogs and the birds and the and the people chatting as they're picking tea. It's incredibly serene. You really do throw yourself into these remote and wonderful places that are very much off the beaten path. Where would you say is the strangest or most memorable place that you've spent the night? Oh, this one year I was in the state of Sikkim, which is in the Himalayas in India. And it's sort of isolated because it was once a kingdom and now it's part of India. But it's incredibly green, forested, You've just got these lovely rolling hills and the foothills of the Himalayas. So you see these amazing white sparkling peaks off in the horizon. The gardens, the the fields where the tea grows are grown in terraces because they're so steep. And the women who have to carry, mostly women, they will be carrying the, the plucked leaf in a basket on their back with a strap over their forehead. So if you if you imagine that you've plucked the tea and it's a camellia, you have a camellia in your garden in Australia, and you will know that it's quite a waxy leaf. It's quite t- tough. And in order to, to shape it and to, and to craft it into beautiful tea that we drink, and so they have these long withering troughs, which were just long beds. They'll use wood to create heat. They, they burn sustainable forestry. Um, to produce uh, heat, which will then pass under the beds for the, the leaves to gently uh, lose their moisture. And they call this withering and they become soft and pliant and great for making tea. 
And this usually happens overnight. So you pick the tea during the day and in the nighttime it'll be laid out for withering or the late afternoon and it goes on through the night. And the smell of the, you can imagine all the aromas evaporating off the tea. It's just the smell of the tea releasing its scent. And mm. I can't, I mean, if heaven doesn't smell like a withering room, I don't know what does. But in Sikkim, I got to stay in a room above the withering room. So all night long, the smell of the tea was evaporating through the floorboards into my room. I can't tell you, it was the most incredible night sleep I've ever had. And I want to go back and live there. I want to live above the withering room. Maybe that's my retirement. I'll, <laughs> I'll have to go and live on a tea uh, garden. I love that. Definitely an unusual retirement plan, but I can see that it would suit you perfectly. <laughs> and speaking of unusual places to spend the night, I did read somewhere about how you used to live in Bolivia and that you once got lost in the Bolivia Andes in search of rare herbs. I must say I'm rather intrigued. Can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah. Well, that was actually before I was the tea lady, but I was looking for some herbs. I was with um, an Aymara Indian and he was a guide for uh, in Bolivia, um, but not in the region we were in. He was a guide in the Amazonian parts and he'd heard that there was these beautiful herbs up in the Altiplano, in the high parts of Bolivia above La Paz. So we're talking about some of the highest places in the world. So I think La Paz is the highest city in the world. And imagine going to the mountains above that. Wow. Yeah. And I'd been staying in La Paz for a while, so I was acclimatized. I was fine. And I thought, I'd love to go with you. And I learned to speak Spanish while I was living there. And I thought, well, he's a guide. It'll be safe. I'll go. And um, we were following a pre-Inca trail. And it wasn't that clear, <laughs> as you can imagine. And um, we found some of these herbs and we couldn't find our way back to the path. So imagine we were we were sort of halfway up a valley Mm. and we couldn't find the path so we didn't know if which side of the valley it was on so we went down to the river and we thought maybe well if we look up we'll be able to see the path from the river and we thought maybe we should follow the river because the river should take something but the river was too was way too vigorous and we kept on falling into the river from the stones and getting what knocked about so we couldn't walk along the river and there was no path along the side so we realized we had to either go up one side or the other and that's a lot of a walk if you imagine from from the river all the way up to to where the trees no longer grow mm. so yeah we we luckily we did find it but there was i don't know if you've ever walked in a jungle before but there's no solid ground underneath your feet you know it's just tree roots and it was very steep so we basically had to climb on our knees i was just covered in spines and it was pretty dangerous and at one point the guide cried and i oh. thought oh my oh, god oh that's a bad sign isn't it <laughs> <laughs> I know. But the best thing was, I was talking about an interesting place to spend the night, is we did find the path to find a little old man who lived on this path. He was an uh, Aymara Indian, and he had this garden full of roses, which was so extraordinary. He had all these different coloured blooms of roses, how they got there in the middle of nowhere in the Andes, God knows. And he didn't speak much Spanish. He spoke Quechua, and the guy didn't speak this. I think he was Aymara. Anyway, they, they did manage to communicate a bit. Um, he said, well, you must need to eat something. And he took us to this kitchen and he had a little low wall along the kitchen and he had guinea pigs. And we really did have guinea pigs for supper. And they were just running around the floor. And then so all the scraps would go onto the floor. And he uh, he gave us a blanket and he put us in the stable with the donkey so we could stay the night. Oh, that's so sweet. It was so bizarre, so crazy, so wonderful. And so we were so happy to be alive and have some cover and some shelter and something to eat and drink. Wow. And the next day we walked to a logging place where they were cutting down trees, sadly, but they had a truck that could take us back to a main road where we could get back. Oh and um, and they wrapped my legs in, in cabbage leaves oh. to try and break, get down all the bruises. And I was in some state, 
Oh, wow. You know, the general rule of thumb is when your guide starts crying, you're in real uh, dire straits. <laughs> real trouble. You know, it's almost, it sounds as if that little old man was a magical being who happened to appear along the path with these rose garden and guinea pigs to save you. It really was. It was, but it was also so simple and humble. And he wasn't like, um, he was sort of a twinkly eyed, saintly man. He was quite brusque with us. He's like, what the hell are you doing? And like, God, I've got to feed you. And yes, you can have this old blanket for God's sake. So you don't freeze to death. I think that I was just trying to romanticize the story a little too much. But it was, but it, that was because it was so beautiful, the Rose Garden, and this man appearing, and it was like it was like heaven, and then we were sort of slightly told off for being so stupid to be lost out in there. <laughs> <laughs> and on a more serious and potentially life-threatening note, during that same time in Bolivia, something else quite extraordinary happened. You were struck by lightning, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. What's the story behind that, Henrietta? I'm I'm embarrassed to tell you that I'm such an idiot. I was, um, (laughs) this is before I was the tea lady and I was traveling around. And so up in this Andean region, there's a town called Croico. And it's the road that leads there is one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous road in the world. It certainly was at the time. They've managed to build a new one now, but it basically used to just collapse all the time. And logging lorries would come down heavy logging lorries and they would just disintegrate the road it wasn't tarmac it was just an earth road because of waterfalls and rivers going down and it was so steep and precipitous so just areas of the road would collapse taking buses and people and stuff down but up to the top is this beautiful town in the andes i mean really in the andes you're you're in the middle of all the peaks and I, I wanted to visit this place and I got up there and I thought, I'm so stupid and foolhardy for getting up there. But anyway, I got to this lovely town and I um, I wanted to stay because it was so beautiful. I didn't want to go on the road back down. So I managed to do a deal with the um, the, uh, the guy who ran the hotel um, to, to work in his bar for room and board. Mm-hmm. And I, after at this point, I'd been living in Bolivia for a year and I hadn't had any electricity two days a week in the place that I lived and then no washing machine, no no shower. I'd live very simply in a in a small Bolivian town. Long, another long story. So anyway, this had a had a pool and a hot shower. Oh my gosh, luxury! People who spoke English, and I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to stay for a few weeks. Anyway, I ended up staying and working in this pool bar. Please don't think sort of club med. We are still in Bolivia, but it was <laughs> yes. so so lovely and looking out over the Andes. And one night the storm came in, and I thought, oh my god, this is, I've never seen a storm in the Andes. It was just beautiful watching it come you know from the as far as you could see in the distance you could just see the beginning of gray clouds coming and they're coming closer and then you could hear the sounds of thunder rumbling across echoing across the the mountains and and the rain came down really heavy and I had to close up the bar and um I had a quick swim in the rain stupidly and then I and I was so exhilarated by the storm and the lightning and the and the sound and the beauty of it all and the lightning lighting up the mountains and I thought I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I thought I must go and call home and tell my my love back home. But I went to a phone booth with an aerial. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't. I mean, anyway, delirious with excitement, I picked up the uh, the receiver and the aerial got struck. And so I was super lucky that I wasn't wearing any jewellery and I didn't hold on. So two things can happen is that you hold on and you're, you know, obviously electrocuted or one that it blows you off. Mm. And um, so it blew me off. It was a concrete floor where this thing was outside and I was knocked quite a few feet away. And when I woke up, there were people all around me saying, 
in Spanish, she's dead, she's dead. Oh. And then when I opened my eyes, they were like, Bruja. They said, oh my God, she's a witch. Because <gasps> it says, oh my gosh, yes, I've heard of that. My uh, my guide who was taking me around the surreal landscapes of, um, of Chile's Atacama Desert. Yeah, I've been. Oh, yes. Well, my local guide told me about this belief there, that if you have a near-fatal encounter with a lightning strike, that the locals believe that if you survive, you become a witch or a wizard. <laughs> yeah. So is that is that what they thought about you as well? Yeah, so it's a sign from God that you have special powers and they don't know if it's good or bad. So a witch or a wizard could be a good thing or a bad thing. They have magic. So after that, no one would, uh, no one would touch me or go near me. They were like so. And I worked with all the other people in the hotel. They were Bolivian, and mm. after that, they wouldn't. They would like they would put a plate down rather than hand it to me or a glass down, and they wouldn't really talk to me. They were very. They were like they're keeping their distance. So oh, wow. it was really good because that saved me from still being some kind of backpacking hippie in the Andes. I think I'm time to go home. I really should go. I was on my way home, but I was like kind of half seduced into staying in this place with the, this idyllic life up in the mountains. And I was like, no, okay, really, I must go home. Well, according to the folklore, what do you think your magic power is? Do you feel a witchy spirit or a superpower after that fateful night? No, but I really, really wish I knew what my magic power was. I haven't discovered it yet. I'm sure I've got one. <laughs> I've just got to work harder to find it. Well, maybe that's where you got your gift for sourcing the best teas in the world. Who knows? But how incredible that you left Bolivia with everyone in that community thinking that you're a witch. That is certainly one for the books. And I do apologize. We've really digressed as I've taken you down this tangent away from your life through the lens of tea. But I have to admit that I'm glad we did because I've never interviewed someone before who's been struck by lightning and transformed into a witch. But to get back onto topic, since reading your book, I've really been reflecting on my travels in tea. And I realized that Many special moments I've experienced have been centered around a hot beverage, whether it's chatting with a street side vendor or chai walla in Jaipur who's pouring that golden masala chai, or sipping a syrupy sweet mint tea known as Berba whiskey in a Moroccan Riyadh, or sharing a bitter tasting mate in a gourd with a gaucho, or Patagonian cowboy after a hike in southernmost Chile. It seems that all these experiences are intrinsically linked to human connection and to hospitality. So I'm wondering, is there some sort of interesting cultural ritual around tea that you've encountered on your travels that really stood out for you? Mm. Yeah, I, I really, you, you've, as you touched on when you were saying that, you know, you've had these amazing tea experiences around the world, like, you know, your chai mm. in India, your Moroccan tea in, um, in Marrakesh, it's very interesting the way that everybody has a tea and everyone has a ritual about it or, you know, or a herbal drink that they like mate in South America. And there's different ways of, of drinking them. And I, you know, you've got me back on the, on the, on South America. I love the fact that you share a gourd in Bolivia and I, and I love the idea of sharing a teapot. And one of the things that the rituals that I really love about tea is that sense of drinking from the same pot that you know we don't have these sort of slightly selfish cups and bags you know and a teapot is 5,000 year old technology that's going to last from you know generations and flood your life with pleasure. Mm. One culture that has a lot of ceremony around tea um, that we're yet to touch on is Japan. Have you had any notable experiences with Japanese tea culture? There's one tea ceremony I love in Japan, and that was I was very privileged to go to a monastery in Kyoto. It was um, a Zen Buddhist monastery, 
And I'd never been anywhere like that before. I'd forgotten the name. Oh, not to worry. If you can't remember, I'll add it to the show notes for our listeners. Oh, yeah, and I probably can't pronounce it right anyway. So it's a very, very famous Zen Buddhist monastery. And if, you, if you're in Kyoto, you'll be able to find it because it's got a, a water garden with no water. So it's all about stones with moss on them and raked gravel around. And they rake the gravel to look like the flow of water. And they arrange the boulders in such a way as to be most pleasing and soothing and then there's moss growing over the boulders and it was a winter's day it was in January that I was there and it was cold and the air was very very clear and thin and I was still wearing my um my coat and hat as we sat down in the monk's room and there, there was a little thin winter sunlight coming through to warm us and he was wrapped in all these amazing woolen um shawls and he was quite a big guy quite round and he looked terribly warm and I was wearing a very elegant Vivian Westwood coat that wasn't very warm <laughs> and a little and a little hat and my hands were frozen and my feet underneath me as I was kneeling were frozen what a bliss it was to hold that lovely warm tea that tea bowl you can understand why people drink tea out of a bowl rather than a cup and a, a monk made a matcha for me and he showed me the simplicity of making matcha and that's a lovely sharing thing that you know you make it in the bowl you're drinking it from and he shared his bowl with me we took sips from either side of it mm. and it was such a, a simple but complex thing you know to make matcha you know first taking a beautiful a vessel covered in cherry wood and he he scooped with a bamboo scoop see him doing it now the matcha powder into the bottom of his bowl and then he took a a bamboo ladle from a iron pot full of hot water and he ladled um, a big scoop of water and then he very rapidly whisked it backwards and forwards in a sort of zed shape um not for very long probably for only about 20 seconds and but he did it so masterfully that there was a fine foam he that he finished by moving his hand very slowly across the top in a slow zed evenly distribute the little bubbles and then he he turned it to a certain angle so that I would see the most beautiful side of the matcha cup mm. and he gave it to me. And But he also pointed first at a little sugary, just a little morsel. Oh, of, the wagashi, the confection with the bean Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's very important to have those two together because matcha can be very intense on an empty tummy. It's like uh, having a biscotti with an espresso if you haven't mm. had any breakfast. And it was so extraordinary. And the way he watched my face and he, he was pleased that I appreciated mm. it. What a special experience. I was fortunate enough to meet a tea master in Kyoto as well. Mm. What did you think? Well, it's quite amazing. There's such a ceremony to the tea. I found it very meditative, mm. the way you learn to focus on the sounds of the boiling water, of feeling the breeze on the back of your neck and breathing in the scent of the gardens. I found it actually intensified the pleasure of drinking the tea for mm. me as opposed to the rushed Western lifestyle where you quickly drink a cup of yep. tea between meetings. So it certainly was a worthwhile experience to try when visiting Japan. And also the wagashi. I love the confections that they serve with the matcha tea. And whenever I'm in Tokyo, actually, I stop by this little shop. I don't know if you're familiar with Higashiya Ginza. Yeah, above the polo building. You know it. Of course, it's my favorite place. Okay, so for the listeners, it's a tea salon in Tokyo and they whisk the tea so expertly yeah. there. Did you sit down for the for the tea pairing the lunch? Did you go into the little private room? No, although last time I remember trying a seasonal sweet with dried persimmon that had been hand-dried and it had this wedge of butter inside. Mm. And it sounds absolutely bizarre, but paired with the tea, it was 
one of the best things that I've ever tasted. Yeah. Love that same place. I know that's crazy. You have excellent taste. When you go, when you go back there, please. Um, there is a private room. It's it's a little bit expensive to have the pairing, but they have a really great chef, and every tea is paired with an, a beautiful dish. And it's so interesting to go through the the way it can be paired together. Oh, that's such a great tip. Next time I visit, I'll definitely be trying that. So lovely. But I'd also think what you were saying about um, slowing down and that you know, the tea ceremony. In Japan is a little long, but that thinking about slowing down, enjoying the ceremony, we can take that into our own lives. We might not need three hours. We may only need five minutes just to stop and to make your tea with consideration and just allow yourself a moment to really enjoy it. Such great advice. And speaking of enjoying tea, you live in London, which is a city renowned for the time-honoured British tradition of afternoon tea. Where, in your opinion, is the best place to experience a proper afternoon tea in London? Well, I think actually the best afternoon tea in the world. If you want that very, um, if that sort of, you know, that quite formal experience, the, you know, the, the full, the full banquet of tea, I think the best place, not just in London, but in the world is Claridge's Hotel. I think they've done it. They've done it. Absolutely. They've taken care of everything. They haven't just thought about some cakes and some funny shapes. Everything is thought about with a tea at the center, at the heart. And that makes me so happy because often tea is pushed out behind the champagne. Yes, as much as I love champagne, after all our talk about the importance of quality tea, it does seem such a shame that so many hotels do that. Now, Claridge's is also one of the most glamorous establishments. It's in the heart of Mayfair. And of course, the tea is served in that magnificent art deco foyer. Yeah, it is. It's the foyer. And you know what I love about Claridge's is it's so quietly elegant, glamorous. Mm. It's not a big show-offy hotel. It's not the biggest hotel in London. It's not the glitziest hotel in London it's just the most elegant you know it's where Cary Grant used to stay and you know it might be quietly royalty and Hollywood royalty but then they're there because they want to be looked after in a very discreet way there's no dress code but everyone is terribly charming and kind and they also the tea will be made at the table perfectly so that when you go and have afternoon tea not only will the cakes and the sandwiches and everything be sublimely delicious but so will the tea and they're all made to go together so that you know the flavors will pair and be wonderful rather than one thing but dominating or you know like it's not just about sugar Mm. and before we go my last question for you is where are you dreaming of escaping to next Waikato New Zealand why Waikato 20 years ago they started a garden in Waikato um, New Zealand Taiwanese gentleman who set it up and it takes thousands of years to make great tea you know and expertise and I couldn't believe that in 20 years they would create tea so good but it's the most extraordinary tea that I've tasted in a really really long time I it's it's world class it's amazing I can't wait to go and visit them it seems to me that you travel to a place and then the tea from there always transports you back in your memory with each sip but also you try brand new tea and then that inspires you to find out where it's grown so it's like this endless cycle of traveling and tasting tea yes and in your book you wrote this sentence that really stood out to me I have made a life for myself that necessitates embarking on adventures. And you absolutely have. Thank you, Henrietta, so much for sharing your travel tales with us today. It's been such a pleasure having you on The Escape Artist. Thank you you so much. That was the ever so lovely tea connoisseur Henrietta Lovell. I'm certainly left wondering if she'll ever discover her magic powers. If our conversation has given you a taste for quality tea, you can visit Rare Tea Company online or uncover more of her stories in her beautiful book, 
infused adventures in tea. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.